0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 46 of the Northwest Method Express. I'm Jonathan, and I'm with Eric again. Hello, Eric. Morning, Jonathan. How's it going?
1: Oh, you know, staying dry on a beautiful Friday afternoon in Vancouver. Okay? Yeah, on a
0: drizzly day in November. So, back in July, episode 34, you and I actually just combed through the Reddit cooking and we, we answered a few questions for people. And I thought it would be a really good chance for us to do that again. Has it been that long? It has been that long. It has been that long. So I, I pulled four questions and I think that we can have a chat about this. So I'm gonna pull an easy one right off the bat. This is a simple soup technique question. So this person said, so I have a turnip green soup which is a family recipe and I'm modifying some parts of it to develop better flavors. My grandmother and mother used to just throw everything into the pot, call it good. I'm doing some things like caramelizing onions, deglazing the pot, blooming my spices, simple stuff. But one of the biggest issues with the soup is the sausage. Usually what they do with the kielbasa is they throw it in at the beginning, let it cook down, and it just turns into a sloppy mess. What would you suggest to add flavor from the kielbasa, but also keeping its shape? What do you think?
1: I I think right off the bat, what really jumps off to mind right now is is really giving that kielbasa some structure Mm -hmm. and rendering some of that fat out initially Mm -hmm. so that you can get that kielbasa flavor throughout the cooking process. And then just incorporating the sausage in at the end, just so that, to make sure that everyone knows what kielbasa is, like, it yes, is the a sausage. sausage. Yeah. Just adding that at the end of the cooking process or near the end of the cooking process so that, you know, you're reincorporating it. It's been introduced at the beginning. You're, yeah. uh, uh, you know, utilizing those flavors throughout the course of the cooking, but adding it near the end will probably save you from having that
0: kielbasa break down too much. So, so using that, using the theory that they're already doing, which is they are doing a lot of deglazing anyway. So cook the kielbasa, deglaze the pan that, you, that you're searing the kielbasa in, pouring that deglazed liquid back into your soup but keeping the kielbasa on the side. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. You can, and especially with soups, and we, we see this with really great chicken noodle soups and things like that, where you're adding your, you don't wanna add your noodles right at the beginning you're adding your noodles right at the end. Same with the turkey rice soups, anything with starches or anything with things that are gonna to turn to mush, add those things right at the end. But with the with this kielbasa, you wanna try and extract some of that flavor. So Yeah, it's good. got it's got beautiful spices and
1: like that that pork fat. That's gonna add a lot of flavor to the soup base. So yeah, that's that's I think that's the best way to tackle that one. Okay,
0: that's a good one. Good one. So related to soups but as the precursor to soup is stock so this person had a question i've started making chicken stock fairly regularly due to purchasing whole birds breaking them down into parts and using the bones for stock is there any danger to thawing frozen stock and using it as the liquid in place of water for a new batch of bones or is this fairly common this is a great question like this person really kind of thought this through and we use we do this all the time mm-hmm. we don't necessarily use frozen stock this doesn't mean that you can't but you know we if we have stock in our fridges at school we will use them to enhance the flavor of new stocks as we make them
1: it's almost like you've started your stock with a bullion cube, yeah. almost yeah right
0: except you made the bullion
1: cube exactly right? and you know what is in that that stock yeah and so You know utilizing something that has flavor to
0: fortify and create more flavor just makes a lot of sense and the reality for us is a lot of people at home have very limited space in their freezers Mm -hmm. so if you can almost um, use stock that's maybe been in your freezer for one or two months to enhance the flavor of a new stock you're still not being wasteful so you're not getting rid of new bones that you have you're using new bones you're and in a lot of ways, too, is you don't have to have a fairly thin stock in your freezer. You know, as an addition to this, you can actually cook your stock really concentrated and then add water to it as you're using it.
1: It's kind of what one uh, of the chefs do here, or really. like, you know, when we have extra dark stock lying around, it is reduced down to a point where it almost looks like demi-gloss. So like you said, it's a really good strategy to utilize as much space as
0: possible. And that was, you know, I think that what this kind of question shows is that people who may be new to cooking are actually thinking through what they're doing, mm-hmm. trying to be mindful. So yeah. I think that's really good. So we talked about this one beforehand because we wanted to to debate a little bit about how we would do it. But this one is a quick question on the order of ingredients for a mushroom risotto. Would the first thing I want to place into my pan be shallots or mushrooms? I feel like mushrooms make sense since I want to cook out the moisture first and get them a little caramelized. But shallots first would also be good since I can sweat them out and get them translucent. So we were talking back and forth and I think there's quite a few different ideas. I'm going to let you go first and see what you think.
1: My, my, My first question is, are you okay with your risotto being a little bit brown in color? because of caramelization and having some souks that you're trying to remove off the bottom of the pan, yeah. or do you want that risotto still to be, you know, a beautiful stark white color? Right. So that's the first question I'll ask, because then that would determine actually two methodologies yeah. of how we would make this risotto. Sure. Right? So okay. let's go with the, the method of keeping that risotto really
0: stark white. What would you do? So I think the big thing, what I would do is I'd actually be using two pans. So I would keep my primary pan as the pan that I toast my rice in. So that would be, I would be toasting my rice in oil right off the bat in that pan. So by toasting, really what you're doing is you're just adding a little bit of color to the rice before you actually start the risotto making process. And then the second pan, what I would do is, first of all, I would probably go with the mushrooms first, get those mushrooms, cook the moisture out because One of the things that people generally don't do is they don't cook their mushrooms long enough. So they feel like they get a little bit of color on their mushrooms and then that's fine. And as they continue to cook their mushrooms later on after they add other ingredients, their mushrooms actually continue to release moisture and what you end up with is boiled ingredients. So what you want to do right off the bat, start a good saute on those mushrooms. Your pan will start to fill with the moisture from the mushrooms, cook that moisture off. Then from there, you'll start to brown your mushrooms more. Once you start to get to that second browning stage, then I would put my, my shallots or onions or whatever I'm using in, cook those down. I probably need to add just a little bit more oil, cook those down, and then in my primary pan, as I would start to add my stock to the rice, if I wanted to keep it beautifully stark, after it's cooked, probably about two thirds, I would incorporate my mushroom and shallot mixture into that, mm-hmm. and that's going to give me. It may not be 100% beautifully white, but it would. It's going to be a lot more than if I would do the other method, which. Is that is that your way, the other method? That's
1: the, the other methodology, because you know, I I I'm, I'm a little bit lazier than Jonathan here. <laughs> I I don't want to clean two pans. I'm gonna clean one. So that's why I'm gonna do everything in one pan. The one thing I would do that we start let we'll talk about you know, mushrooms first, because that's what has all that moisture that be cooked out. I think the one key with cooking mushrooms that we should mention, don't salt them right away. Yes. Get color out of them right away, because if second that you add salt to that mushrooms, they're gonna start pulling that moisture out of them, like Jonathan mentioned. So get your color, get caramelization on those mushrooms, then add salt to extract the liquid. Once I get it cooked to a point where I like it, then I'm gonna add my aromatics, sweat that out. Once those are slightly translucent, I add my rice in there, toast that off, and then go through the whole risotto process. But because of the caramelization of mushrooms and the sweating of onions and aromatics at the beginning, there's always just gonna be a slight brown tinge to it, which I really don't mind,
0: because at the end of the day, mushrooms are from the earth. It just makes sense to me. Absolutely. I mean, it's not like, you know, you'll see a lot of times people will do a pea risotto where they don't actually have any pea puree in it. Mm -hmm. They just put peas in a risotto. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't know. I like like Mm -hmm. color from what it is you're primarily calling it. I mean, if I want a pea risotto, I want a green risotto. That's, if, I want a, yeah. if I want a mushroom risotto, I'm expecting it to be brown.
1: Slightly, yeah. so, right? Yeah. So it just, exactly. It just depends on what, what you're, you're trying to showcase. Yeah. And that should be the primary color that,
0: that you see. Okay, so our last question may not be our last question because we're going a little quicker than I thought we we're going to. But the last question I originally had was simple dishes that blew your mind. For context, I recently just braised bone-in chicken thighs with some aromatics. The thighs, with reduced broth, rice, and chili oil, blew my mind. Anything that you have that's blown your mind recently? Eric. Recently, like, no, because I just haven't been
1: dining out much, but honestly, for something that is simple and blown my mind, I would say onigiri. Yeah, and tell people what onigiri is. If you've never had onigiri, it's, it's it's a simplest term. It's Japanese seasoned rice, and I used to make them at a restaurant I used to work at when it was in Vancouver. Something super simple, but it just added a ton of flavor. But my most vivid memory of it is we're in Kyoto at a yakitori restaurant, and it's literally rice, salt, and it's grilled. But the fact that these three components together made something so complex in flavor,
0: I couldn't believe it. So there's two things that I want to say. First of all, if anybody listened to the last episode, you haven't been going out for dinner lately? No. <laughs> no, I've been cooking at home lately, actually. Yeah. But the second thing is, we talked about it when we were talking about Kisitanto, mm. is the whole concept of quality ingredients done simply and really emphasizing the quality of the ingredients. That's, that's the key to Japanese food, right? Mm-hmm. So. And so, like, you know, something like that quality of rice, and someone
1: who knew how to cook that rice properly, and by utilizing another heat source such as charcoal, you imparted another flavor element to it, right? So it
0: just, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, good, cool. I mean, if people haven't tried it, they definitely should, it is amazing. What all for you? So for me, I'm gonna, I wanna first of all, give props to the actual person who asked the question, because the key to what they were talking about was braising. So one of my favorite dishes would be just doing a simple stew, do it in my Instapot, and then just, you know, a really tasty cut of meat, usually a really tough, like a chuck. And then just the key component to a lot of these things is time. And it's an element that it doesn't, on its own, it doesn't add flavor. But what it does is it, it forces patience, and it forces the, the ability to eat generally inedible meat. It allows, it breaks down connective tissue and makes it an absolutely amazing flavor. So to me, a simple stew is, is the way to go, and you don't need a lot of ingredients with that. You need stew meat, three or four vegetables, and broth, and salt. That's it. Very simple, and like you said, Utilizing time. Yep. So I have, a, I have one more question, Eric, that I'm going to throw in here. Let's go be, for it. Yeah, because it was, I saw it and you and I are both Smashburger guys. Mm. So I, I saw this question and I wanted to bring it out. So pre-seasoning a Smashburger patty the night before. I'm planning on making Smashburgers on the charcoal grill for a party. I'm going to be making and smashing the patties the night before. I'm wondering whether I should season them then or wait until just before cooking. What do you think? In my mind,
1: like with a smash burger being that thin, maybe overnight is a little bit premature.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Right? I, I agree. I, I don't, if I was doing a lot, I would pre-smash for sure. If, it never, if nobody's ever had a smash burger, basically the difference between a smash burger and what we would traditionally call a steakhouse burger, a smash burger is is pressed very thin, no more than you know half a centimeter in thickness, so that they cook exceptionally quickly. Generally, what happens is most people, if you watch some of the most of the smash burger experts, mm-hmm. they will actually season when it's on the grill. For me, I do tend to season, if I'm gonna be making a smash burger right away, I will season my meat, smash, and then go on the grill. But if, in this case, if I was pre-smashing the night before, I would definitely season just before cooking. Just before, right? Because otherwise it just, it, it's gonna get too salty. It is. Right? It is. And the, the, the challenge is you might draw moisture to the surface, and if you dab the moisture off, then there's flavor that's going away. If you don't dab the moisture off, then you're going to essentially boil your smash burgers.
1: Yeah, and the, like you mentioned, the, why it's important to remove that moisture. Is, it's all about surface area to get caramelization yeah. and, and that crispy Maillard reaction, right? Yeah. That lattice at the end. And so by having
0: that moisture, it's just not going to happen. Exactly. So And especially when it's a little bit fattier, too, if you're using a slightly fattier pe- you know, ground beef, yeah. I think you might you you might break down the components in the meat just a little bit too much. Is it wrong that my mouth is salivating right I now know. thinking about some smash <laughs> burgers? Like, yeah. So we sh- we should totally do a smash burger class. I oh, think- that's right, we do. <laughs> that's right, we do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric. Thank you so much for this. We we really need to do this more than every four months, but I think that. We'll we'll definitely come back probably in the next month or so with another one of these. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This was episode 46 of the Northwest Method Express. I'm Jonathan, and I was with Eric. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you were to find out more information about the school, you can check us out at nwcav.com or if you want to find out about our online courses, you can go to the northwestmethod.com. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.